I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm talking with Trevor Bacon, CEO of Parcel, a DeFi protocol built on Solana. Parcel is among a number of recent projects bringing real-world assets, OWAs, on-chain. Essentially, real-world assets are blockchain-based tokens that represent physical or traditional financial assets. Fine art, loans, real estate, equity, all of these could be tokenized as RWAs. In the TradFi space, these assets account for trillions of dollars of global value. If blockchains can disrupt even a small percentage of those markets, it will be a massive breakthrough for adoption. It would also represent a bridging of the TradFi and DeFi worlds, with RWAs making crypto investments more accessible to institutional investors, spooked by regulatory concerns and volatility. RWAs are also bringing liquidity to traditionally illiquid markets and lowering the barrier to entry for retail investors, both of which Trevor discusses through the lens of Parcel. Parcel uses publicly available data to calculate the average price of a square foot in a given neighborhood, and then uses blockchain to mint neighborhood-specific tokens and clear trades. It's not designed for direct tokenization of real estate, but instead market exposure of real-world assets. But for all of the promise of RWAs, they also come with some concerns. We tend to think of blockchains as paragons of perfect information, but lags between on and off-chain data create information asymmetries for RWA market prices. There's also an issue of centralization. In order to support RWA smart contracts, a massive amount of human labor needs to be done in the real world, data collection, data verification, etc., which introduces a component of third-party trust into the equation. Trevor provides us with a mental model for thinking about some of these issues and how they may evolve over time. As always, if you have questions or thoughts or an episode suggestion for us, you can reach out to us at validated at solana.org. Let's jump in. Trevor, welcome to Validated. Thanks for having me. I want to start off today with an overview of RWAs, which are real-world assets. It's a term that folks in the blockchain space have been throwing around for a while now, but I'm not sure we really have a canonical definition for it yet. How would you define what fits into the RWA category? It is interesting how the blockchain community kind of speaks to real-world assets. There are things that exist in the physical world. If you think about real estate, cars, buildings, anything that is physical, at least from a financial perspective. So you have loans against physical assets. You have something like what we're doing. We have people slicing and dicing home equity and putting that on chain. So there's various ways to tap into it. I think the way that the ecosystem is adopting it is leveraging the blockchain to create efficiencies and lower costs for things like mortgages or loans or trading. Yeah. I always think it's funny because like Crypto, famously bad at naming everything, right? Yeah. Like a wallet is not actually where your tokens are. It's Austin, we to should, stuff on chain. We should work on this. We I should know, figure right? it out. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, you think about like, oh, what's a real world asset? It's like, well, are, are stable coins real world assets? Sure, maybe. Mm-hmm. But are, uh, you know, you mentioned like a mortgage. Like a mortgage is a totally artificial construct, right? It's a, yep, it's a yep. debt obligation against a physical piece of real estate. Like, Yep. tokenizing real estate, you could say like, oh, there's something real there, quote unquote, real there, right? But like, if we're talking about a loan against a property, like, is that a real world asset? It's always like a very difficult thing to yep. actually nail down like what is and isn't. But sort of from your perspective, the grounding of it in something like physical is part of what makes it a real world asset? I think 
there's multiple layers. Like a real world asset, you could be doing financing on a, a car loan via the blockchain. Or I know Credix is doing a lot of this. They're on Solana too. Yeah. It's like micro financing for businesses and asset back loans. So that's one element. And I think another element would be something like what we're doing is basically creating the spot market for real estate. It's tethered to the real yeah. world, though it's not a real world asset. Yeah, I want to get into Parcel a bit. But first, like, I just want to keep going with this game of hot dog, not hot dog for a yeah. second. Um, <laughs> what about something like tokenized IP? I would consider that a real world asset. Okay, so like bringing like equities on chain falls into that category as well. Yeah, you know, they're an asset yeah. in the real world. I think you could categorize like music royalties. I know that would fall into like a different zone of where people want to classify it, but it is an asset in the real world and you could tokenize it and, and write loans against it, refactor it. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can do with it. So yeah, I would, I would call IP uh, a real world asset for sure. Yeah, in the TradFi space, like real world assets are a significantly higher portion of most financial transactions than we would call them non-asset backed transactions, right? Yes. I mean, equities are all in it's it's like the owning of the cash flows of a company. So, you know, equity is the last person to get paid, but you do have a claim on the remainder of profits after everyone else gets paid, like debt holders. And then the mortgage-backed security business is massive, trillions and trillions and trillions. The mortgage industry itself, trillions and trillions and trillions. And then you carve those up into different trading vehicles like CMBS and RMBS. So, you know, it typically will spawn from some form of uh, asset. Same with debt. You know, a company takes out debt, they're an asset because they create cash flows. You know, you could borrow against a house, which is a real-world asset. So borrow against a, a lot of stuff. Typically, you can borrow against it because there's some kind of salvage value. And that is what an asset is. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of bringing mortgages on the blockchain is basically as old yeah. <laughs> as smart contracts on the blockchain. And, I, you know, I personally think it's probably one of the, the more tenuous use cases for a blockchain, just because there's so much of that industry that's subsidized by the federal government. There's all these complicated relationships where like turning that thing fairly permissionless feels like it's going to be hard to do and and maintain subsidies and compliance with, yep. you know, fair credit requirements and those sorts of things. That being said, we are still finally beginning to see real world assets popping up on blockchains. I, I think probably the, the first area that this was like really apparent mm -hmm. is carbon markets and tokenized carbon credits. But there's a lot of barriers to bringing real world assets on chain. And I think one of the main ones is that they exist yeah. off chain, right? So you can see your your classic Oracle problem, Oracle, yeah. not the company, <laughs> but a blockchain Oracle. And you can see that compounding, right? That every time you have to deal with like tokenizing or sort of blockchainifying something that exists elsewhere, you have to make sure that thing continues to yeah. exist elsewhere. Exactly. This is not like a blockchain problem, right? Like Masterworks runs into this exact same type of problem. If you're fractionalizing artwork, you have to store the artwork somewhere and you have to insure the artwork and you have to, you know, there's a whole other piece that goes into that. So what are the kind of real world assets that you're seeing actually get adoption and be built into real products on blockchain? And what are sort of things that right now are just not really possible easily to do, or at least not economically compelling to do in a blockchain? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in theory, there's a lot of promise that the blockchain can offer 
to the general financial ecosystem. The general financial ecosystem encompasses real world assets because that's the majority of finance. I think with respect to where there are hurdles, so where can the blockchain become helpful? I think the legal infrastructure, if you, if you could solve for that, the blockchain allows just a much more frictionless experience. However, the legal infrastructure is kind of what keeps a lot of these industries gated. So when you think of the housing industry, we have deeds, mortgages, insurance, and a lot of that stuff, as you mentioned, is already subsidized by the government. In my opinion, to have some form of mortgage industry on chain, the use case on the blockchain would have to be so compelling that it's almost mandated by the government that records move on chain, deeds move on chain, and that kind of forces some form of mass adoption that you have to comply with with the government. And so those four things that I just mentioned are, are a lot of the hurdles, deeds, insurance, mortgages, credit scores, and then just trust, like you're buying a house, how do I know the ha- you know, how, verifying that the house is what we said it is. Obviously that's a lot easier with technology, but it's a physical property, kind of what you were alluding to before. So you need validators to inspect and make sure that uh, people are selling what they say they're selling. And then in terms of what people are, are doing currently on chain, I think Credits is a great example, especially given that they're, they're on Solana. They're playing in emerging markets and supplying credit to folks that otherwise would not have access to credit and using that in kind of like a asset-backed loans and then packaging those up and then reselling them through traditional financial institutions. I think that's a that's a great kind of untapped market. Granted, we'll see how it scales into more established markets where where credit's more easily accessible. Yeah, you know, even in emerging markets, like this is, you know, I haven't had credits on the show yet, but it, it's something like I've been kicking around for a little while. But you know, even in, in those sort of examples, it feels like the hard work there is not the blockchain work. It feels like the yep. hard work there is like establishing the credit rating of an individual or an entity, especially in an emerging market that you want to issue a loan to. And then like, maybe there's a few basis points of efficiency you can shave off with using a blockchain. But like, I, I guess that's kind of the piece that I was trying to get at is like, you can tokenize anything, right? Yep. You, you, like there, there's nothing from a blockchain technology standpoint that means I couldn't tokenize my cat if I wanted to. Yeah. That wouldn't be a useful uh, endeavor to tokenize a cap on a blockchain, <laughs> yeah, right? For exactly. for many reasons, but but you know you can think of types of financial instruments that the ability to have a blockchain adds a huge amount of utility to. Decentralized lending and borrowing is like very much one of those things where the, there's an on-chain asset that you're taking out a loan against and you're getting something else on chain in return. It seems like every time we move that space to there's something off-chain that we are representing on-chain. There's a whole lot of human messy work that goes into making that actually possible and, and the utility of a blockchain maybe diminishes there. Or am I kind of thinking about that wrong? Yeah, I think the best way to frame this question is like, if we started from scratch, if you started from zero, would you use the blockchain for everything? If you have no existing tech debt, the infrastructure is clean, would you use the blockchain as an efficient layer to create mortgages, et cetera, et cetera? And then how much human interaction is needed? And then I think to the point I made earlier, there is a lot of things in the real world that are not possible most likely today with respect to blockchain. So, you know, if you're taking a house and putting it on chain, you still have to manage that house and you have to manage the tenant. You have to collect the rent manually. In some cases, maybe they pay via a wallet, but if that tenant defaults or leaves, how do you get another person in the house? And then you have to market 
you have to get an agent to to fill the house. So you know these things are not it's a lot. straight. It's a lot. And frankly, like when you think about real estate, it's a legacy industry. It's slow to move, and part of that is maybe the players, but another part of it is how much legality and paperwork of this sticky manual stuff that it takes to fill a building with tenants and pay off, you know, using that cash flow to pay the bank, et cetera. So, you know, that part I think is the, the part that's tough to bridge. So there's multiple components we're talking about here, but one of them is sort of this uh, real world asset infrastructure that's required, right? And some of that is on-chain primitives. Some of that is potentially better systems of bringing off-chain data on-chain, like where do you see the tools today as being sufficient for a certain class? And then do you see sort of work being done with different types of tooling that might unlock new types of real-world assets getting economically affordable to mint on-chain? I think the infrastructure has a long way to go. You know, just when you think about even like the venture, basically like the venture path, right? Like a lot of venture went into infrastructure for blockchain itself. So layer ones and a lot of the wallets and security. And then you had a lot of gaming investment, largely because it's safe from a regulatory standpoint, but it got a little crowded. And so you haven't really seen much investment in real world assets. It's kind of like maybe on the come this year, right? And so when you think about who has been building it, the people and the teams that have tried or started to, it's, it's been kind of like I don't want to say left for dead, but it, it hasn't been fully explored, especially from the venture side. They kind of pile into the, the infrastructure at first, the safe things, right? It's like very obvious kind of, but you know, yeah. there's diminishing returns as everyone goes to the same thing. And so you know, I think that means that there's a lot of ground to cover because there hasn't been so much investment in the space. Builders haven't fully been uh, rewarded just yet. And so I think you, you need to start small. And then, you know, we see pockets, home bases, taking houses and tokenizing the equity and putting it on the platform via Solana. I mentioned credits again, they're kind of in the emerging market. So it's starting at like kind of that grassroots level of like brick by brick and hoping that those can satisfy demand such that an ecosystem can build around them. And then companies will start to form around some of these, these pain points that you mentioned. Yeah, so maybe it would be helpful to walk through some of the data flow that Parcel uses to create its prices. A huge part of what you're doing is based on markets that move fairly quickly and are off-chain. So how do you bring that data on-chain so it actually reflects what's going on in the real world? And how do you make sure that you don't run into your sort of typical Oracle problems? Yeah, so just for context, Parcel is effectively creating the spot market for real estate first in the us and then we're expanding globally we do this by collecting sales and listings data which is effectively the market prices you know the list is the ask price the sale is kind of the mid price by the way we collect about 10 million data points a day every sale and listing outcomes a median price per square foot which is effectively the market price for any given boundary that we set currently it's it's cities we're actually going to be launching a country parcel. So the United States, and then soon we'll be going into international markets, starting with Paris. And so that data goes through an API from the warehouse to API and through an Oracle onto the trading platform and interacts with the parcel smart contracts. Right. And so in parcel, you guys are functionally taking 
zip code derivatives? Uh, I would say it, it functions most like a perpetual prediction market. So again, we have the country canvassed. So it's really what boundary we set outcomes right. the listing and sales. So of that boundary. So currently we've, we've started at the city level. We could go down to the neighborhood level over time. Yeah. So if I come in and I say, hey, I think New York's a good real estate market, what could I do on Parcel? On the platform, you can say, let's say Brooklyn, $700 a square foot. You live in Brooklyn, right, Austin? I do. So $700 a square foot, you're renting, you know, your, your rent's going up because the market's going up. You're tired of it. And you're like, I want to go long. I'm, I'm inherently short because every time the market goes up, I'm paying more. And so in this case, you could go long that price. So $700 a square. I, I need to check what it actually is, but $700 roughly a square foot. You can go long that price. And if it goes up, you make money. If it goes down, you lose money. That's effectively what it is. It's a, it's a trading platform for real estate prices. And you can go up to 10 times levered. However, there's no margin risk. It's a mathematical leverage. So it's basically like price amplification. And so you can kind of proxy a mortgage with four to five times leverage and protect yourself from rising prices if, if you want to buy in the future or speculate or however you'd, you'd like to express your view on real estate. Yeah. And so at this point, like, give us a sense of like how many users are actually going in and using like like who's on the other side of most of these trades is it algorithmic like with an amm or are you actually like having people going short for the people going long yeah it's a combo of both so the actual protocol itself is a, a pvp amm and so everyone participates in the pool everyone is actually a liquidity provider in the pool it is a balance of longs and shorts so longs do pay shorts if there is an imbalance, liquidity providers, which are op optional, but the pools operate better with more liquidity, step in and fill the gap. So it's it's novel, but we think the architecture is basically perfect for something without a liquid spot market uh, like real estate. And, and we're kind of creating that market ourselves. With respect to users, so we've been live for about four months now and traction has been solid. I think uh, we're kind of in the three to 400 monthly active users and continuing to grow nicely uh, month over month. And then we'll continue to expand into new geographies, which I think is key because people are most familiar with where they live and just making it more of a global experience should open the doors to more users. Yeah, I'm curious because, you know, pretty famously, one of the largest real estate tech companies, if we can call them tech companies, Zillow, decided they were going to get into something similar to, I wouldn't quite call it a spot market, but they were going to try and provide very fast, very liquid transactions. Um, and they famously lost a ungodly amount of money because their systems just couldn't calculate these things correctly, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Um, or they weren't able to sell houses at the rate they thought they were going to sell houses. Like, So walk me through a little bit of like, what are some of the, and you know, famously MLS data is like not that great. Like I was in, I was in the market for a place a little while ago and like there were properties that I would sort of say like, oh, I'm, I'm watching this one, you know, on, on street easy or something like that. And there would be months without an update. And then suddenly it would update and say, actually it was sold three months ago. We just yeah. finally pulled the record in. So like talk a yeah. little bit about both, like how you think about preventing something like what happened with Zillow and then also like the frequency and the freshness of the data when a lot of the stuff seems like it's still 
paper records that might take months to actually get digitized. Yeah. Uh, so on the iBuying stuff, which is stands for instant buyer, companies like Zillow, Open Door is the, mo- the, the most pure play version of this. They will buy homes and then flip them relatively shortly. For Zillow specifically, I would say, I mean, my, you know, they kind of mentioned that it was part like a, a flaw in the pricing model. I, I would argue that, you know, this is just hypothesis, but it was just a bad time to get into that business. If you bought a house during COVID and needed to do renovations, there was extreme supply shortages. You couldn't get labor. And so it, the, I don't know what their internal model was for like time to value on, on like when they were going to flip the houses. But my guess is that it, it extended quite beyond what they initially thought. And so then it becomes unprofitable because you're holding these assets longer and, and you can't flip them. So, you know, I think for them, it was a it was a shot they tried and you know i think there was just like a lot of macro factors that that took place that were the timing just didn't work with respect to data itself so we collect every data point every day we're not tethered to a specific company or or site so every day we're getting every listing every sales cut every sale and then kind of what you mentioned earlier what we do have as like a reconciliation layer is is access to county records and county records is when the deal actually goes into the into the official government system and the issue with the county records at least for our intents and purposes is that they update on a kind of bespoke basis county to county so new york city is actually pretty fast like if you sell you know you kind of updated within two weeks but other places could be six months so we reconcile all properties to that county record and, and have a history for every property in the country, but we do not rely on that data because it's just too lagged. So one of the pieces that like I think is interesting here is that there are real estate derivative markets that exist in the TradFi space. And my understanding is those are mostly unregulated markets as they exist today. And one of the interesting pieces here is that like the price of a spot market for real estate derivatives or for a, a real estate derived, you know, future or option as you're as you're talking about here. These things can diverge from the reality of a market in an interesting way. And I don't know if that's necessarily a problem, but it's interesting to think about from a perspective of like how much work do you have to do to sort of backtest your data sets and make sure that sort of here's the what our algorithm would have predicted these sort of things would be. Did that actually match up with how it was at the time looking back on additional data? Like, how do you think about that? Like, everything else in blockchain operates with complete and perfect information, right? And again, because this is so much off chain and because you're waiting on things like the state of New York to update a database, there's an inherent lag in there. How do you think through, like, I don't want to use like the term slippage, but like, what what is like an acceptable range for that to be within in your mind? And, and how much of the work of actually running parcel is like, just boring off-chain web one, web zero data feed work versus like actual smart contract on-chain work? It's split. You know, we we have data and, and product and, and that's kind of how we operate. The data team just, it, they do a ton of work, a lot of it upfront infrastructure work to get this the schemes in place to ingest this amount of data. It's a lot of data and it grows every day. You, you bring up a good point. I think there's no way to validate that this is the price because it doesn't exist. So what we've spent a lot of time doing is is benchmarking versus something like the Case Shiller, which is 
which is much more established to date. However, there are a lot of flaws in that model. It updates once a month on a two-month lag, so it's not very timely. And it incorporates massive amounts of areas because they use a, a different type of methodology, a repeated sales methodology. So when you're getting New York, you're really getting New Jersey, Connecticut, Manhattan, and the boroughs and parts of Long Island. So it's not very descriptive in terms of what you're actually using. So for us, it's it's building trust via transparency is to the best we can. Uh, we have a white paper for Parcel Labs price feeds. And then it's it's really comping against the Kate Schiller. We have a 0.99 R squared versus the Kate Schiller markets, and we, we predict them every month. And so that's a goal, to be the number one index, get rated by some of the financial ratings agencies, and in the future, really be the, the go-to source for real-time real estate index pricing in the spot market. This is a very loaded question, but I don't mean it to be that way, but there's kind of no other way to ask this. Should people think of Parcel as decentralized, centralized, or somewhere in between? For now, it's somewhere in between. Yeah. Do you think there's a path? And I mean, that makes sense. Like what you're describing is a huge amount of backend, quite frankly, human work that has to be done to support the smart contract system, which it itself is, of course, on-chain and decentralized. How decentralized do you think it's possible to make real-world assets on-chain? Like it's a it's a very different spectrum between like obviously USDC is some form of a real world asset on chain is yep. incredibly centralized, right? And then on the other extreme, you have something like Uniswap, right? Yeah. Like very different sort of structure there. What do you think that like? I don't mean like hypothetical end state, but if if we fast forward like a year or two, what level of decentralization do you think is reasonable to expect from real world asset projects? Great question. I think it's hard to know without clear guidelines. So that's just, you know. What do you mean by clear guidelines? Like what's what's missing there? Regulation. So there's been certain bills and there's different levels for what's decentralized and what's not. None of them have been made into law. But, you know, there's a lot to, to guess on. I think Circle is a great example. They're basically or close to being a public company. They have audited financials. They are dollars. There's trust. And so... It's kind of like what matters and why. So does it matter that circles centralized or decentralized? Like, did the vast majority of people care? Yeah. Or do they just use US dollars from circle for whatever application they need to use it on? And then, you know, it just is what it works, right? It's just utility. So how decentralized do we have to be to provide utility? And then people will comply with that, that framework. But right now, uh, for real world assets, just given it requires management of, for example, Circle has to manage their treasury and, and put it into actual banks because it's a lot of dollars and that requires human intervention. So to me, that's like the gold standard. I don't know where on the spectrum they sit, but it's a good framework for people dealing with real world assets. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one to think about because I think if you ask most people, like, what is the ideal structure for a DeFi protocol? they'll say totally permissionless and totally decentralized, right? Like, and, and that's hypothetically possible in fully on-chain stuff. It's interesting to think like even in the absence of regulation, if something like Parcel were allowed to exist in a fully deregulated marketplace, like even just from a structural standpoint, like how much of it do you think you actually could create permissionless or, or because there's always this information asymmetry where the real world knows more than the blockchain knows, there always has to be some trusted humans involved in that process. Yeah, I think the distinction here is, so the reason why 
Parcel Labs, which is the data effort, was created is because it doesn't exist. There's no daily price feed in the U.S. Right. and to our knowledge in many parts of the world. So it ended up that we had to build it ourselves. And for that, I would imagine that it was always, it's going to, it's a centralized company that will always be a centralized company. But yeah. because at first we actually wanted to use a third party. So instead we had to create this. So that said, they're different entities and, you know, there's a world where the, the trading platform is completely decentralized. There's a world where it's partially centralized. That part is up to us. I think who the, the trading platform ingests data from and the oracles, what API it uses will come from a, a third party, just like, you know, chain links quotes come from the NASDAQ. It's, you know, that NASDAQ is a centralized entity, much like all exchanges, the feeds come from that centralized entity. Same exact thing for us. It'll always come from Parcel Labs and it can be decentralized uh, over time. We, we just need to make the best decision once we have all the information. So from a technology standpoint, do you think there are different like primitives or, or, or sort of fundamental technologies needed to support more types of real world assets on chain? I mean, one of the things that like I keep thinking about is like, a treasury note is sort of a treasury note, and they're mostly interchangeable until you really need to know exactly which one this represents. And the NFT standards feel a little heavy for that sort of thing. Have you seen anything that's sort of filling that gap? Or do you think there's a need for something else that's not quite a fully fungible token, like one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin? That's not necessarily true for real world assets in the same way, but it's also, you know, it's not like each different real world asset needs to have its own PFP. Yeah. For us, just given some of the, the hurdles that, that we, we discussed earlier with respect to trusting the data, over time, what we, we think is a viable solution to help it become more trustless is zero-knowledge oracles. We've explored a few. They're kind of still in the, the early days, so not yeah. uh, ready at this moment. But it's kind of what are people having to trust, you know, assuming that the data coming in is clean every day. It's basically the formula that creates the price feed. So right. uh, in that vein, how do you know that that formula is right? You can put it in a zero-knowledge oracle and get stamped correct and then fed to the blockchain. So that's one way that uh, one piece of technology that we're, we're watching closely and, and excited about. It, it just seems like it's a little, little early, but we're excited to, to get there over time. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm excited to see where this whole sort of new class of, of products goes. There's sort of an interesting intersection where we don't think of DPIN, decentralized physical infrastructure networks, as real world assets, but in some regard, they actually are, right? It is some form of a tokenized representation of a, a served market, even if that market is just, you know, 500 meters around my apartment in New York because I have a helium hotspot here. Yeah. But there is a certain, there's a, is this a very interesting, like, again, back to our, us being bad at naming things in crypto. A lot of these concepts I feel like are probably going to intersect at some point. And it might be possible that, you know, I sell the cell tower, for lack of a better term, that I operate as like an actual real world asset represented on something like Parcel in the future, even though it itself provides services on a blockchain. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's interesting to think about all these. Yeah, whatever you're, you, you'd have to get paid through a wallet and then have claim to that cash if you were borrowing against it or something like that. But you get down the rabbit hole of, of ways. To, yeah, it's basically how can I borrow against this asset and can right. I do it on chain? There's a world for that for sure. 
yeah, it's kind of interesting to think of like if there's a world for factoring for blockchain income streams. Yeah, I mean, that's a slam dunk probably. Well, Trevor, thanks for joining us today on Validated. Thank you. I appreciate it. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.